Amen. Well, I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar ever sang, but if he, he did, uh, he would have liked that song. Because that's essentially what that song says is what he said at the end of Daniel chapter 4 in describing what I consider his, his radical conversion. And uh, it is my strong opinion that we will have the privilege of meeting King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. But it wasn't always like that. And that's why I've chosen to title Daniel chapter 4, The Boastful Beast. Pride goes before a fall. And uh, the reason why I asked, as you'll see as we get into this chapter together, why that song is so appropriate for us to sing this morning, because of all the different titles for the name of God, uh, the Most High God is how God is referred to the most in this chapter over and over and over and over and over again. You're going to see the title, The Most High God. Um, and so that's what um, this, this chapter is all about. Well, I'm sure many of you have read the classic book, Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis. And uh, he included a chapter in that book called The Great Sin. And uh, he could have very well entitled it The Greatest Sin. And this is what he wrote in that chapter. Quote, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Obviously, the vice he was referring to is pride. He called pride, quote, the essential vice, the utmost evil. Lewis said this, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. And then he said, added this, pride leads to every other vice. When you think about it, pride was the original sin. It was the source of every other sin. Now, typically when we consider the original sin, when we talk about the original sin, who is the first people that come to mind? Adam and Eve, right? When they were in the garden and they ate of the forbidden, forbidden fruit in Eden, but before Adam and Eve ever sinned, Satan had already sinned. And the sin that he committed in heaven ultimately led to sin here on the earth. And Satan's sin was what? Pride. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah for a moment, and I want you to see something very fascinating. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17 Isaiah is prophesying about the king of Babylon and what was going to happen to him. But most Bible scholars will agree that while this literally is a reference to the king of Babylon, this is also a veiled reference, a type, if you will, of the fall of Satan. 
Tell me if it's not obvious to you as we read these verses together. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, and notice the five I wills of Satan. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Sounds very Satan-like. Verse 15, nevertheless, you shall be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Again, sounds very much like the fall of Satan. From heaven to hell. Now turn over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And here we find another fascinating reference leading up to the book of Daniel. This is Ezekiel 28 verse 11. And again, the prophet Ezekiel was prophesying about the king of Tyre. And so what we're about to read literally, historically, applies to or references the king of Tyre. But again, Bible scholars agree that this is also a veiled reference or a type of Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onks, the jasper, and it names all these different emeralds, gold, workmanship of your set, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. In other words, you were the most magnificent angel that I ever created. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you all, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled by you or at you. You have become terrified and will cease to be forever. Again, while these two prophetic passages refer to the fall of literal kings, the literal king of Babylon, possibly Nebuchadnezzar, um, and the literal king of Tyre, 
They are veiled references to the fall of Satan who energized these earthly kings and in many ways embodied them. They were representative of their master, Satan. And so from these passages, we can conclude that what happened in Satan's heart, this glorious angel in heaven, was he desired to be worshipped like God. And his pride caused him to be banished from heaven and will ultimately result in him being destroyed in hell. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 talks about qualifications of, of an elder, that they shouldn't be a new convert so that they will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Though The point is the devil was conceited, he was prideful, and he was condemned. He fell. And we know he fell to where? Earth. He landed in the garden, if you will. And he tempted Eve to commit the same exact sin that he had tried to commit in heaven. And it was pride. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, when he was tempting Eve, he said, did God really say that you couldn't eat of anything, all this stuff? Or, or, or was it maybe because he knew if you did eat of that, you would become like him? You would be like God. And so she thought about that and said, hey, that sounds pretty good to me. To become like God? To know good, good and evil? And so the point is that the essence of sin or the sin of pride is aspiring to be, what? Like God. It's seeking to supplant him as the supreme being in the universe so that we can receive the praise and the, and the honor and the glory that's due to God alone. And so pride is essentially worshiping ourselves rather than God. And self-worship is the root of all sorts of other sins like envy, lust, gluttony, anger, Greed, gossip, laziness, all rooted in self-worship. Someone has said it this way, pride takes innumerable forms but has only one end, self-glorification. That's the motive and ultimate purpose of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification, contending for supremacy with Him. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God, thereby attempting, in effect, to deprive God of something only He is worthy to receive. And that's why God hates pride so much. It's an attempt to rob Him of His glory. Isaiah 48, verse 11, God said, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. Now, from, uh, to our human ears, that may sound kind of prideful. <laughs> well, God sounds a little prideful himself, a little boastful. Well, we know that God is holy, he's perfect, and, and what may appear to be pride to us is not to him. He's God. And from his perspective, as one man has written, pride seems to be the most serious sin. There's nothing that God hates more than this. God righteously hates all sin, of course, but the biblical evidence 
abounds for the conclusion that there's no sin more offensive to God than pride. Notice Proverbs chapter 6, a familiar passage, I'm sure, where the things that God hates are listed here. This is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him, and leading the list is what? Haughty eyes, pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And in that same chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And then Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Now, the fact that a prideful person will be humbled and a humble person will be exalted, as it says there in Proverbs 29, 23, was reaffirmed by Jesus himself, who said repeatedly in the Gospels, whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted. In fact, two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and Peter, both stated in the letters that they wrote, James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the who? Proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, I don't know of any better illustration in the Bible of all these biblical principles about pride and humility than what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 4. And that was all for free. That was all an introduction to getting us to Daniel chapter 4. And we know in the first three chapters, we have already gotten a glimpse of how extremely prideful Nebuchadnezzar was. In fact, last week we saw in chapter 3 how Nebuchadnezzar was so full of himself that he actually built a 90-foot gold statue, presumably of himself, and forced everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship him as the sovereign king of the earth. And so chapter 4 is, follows right on the heels of that, where we see how the king of heaven, the most high God humbled this proud man and forced him to bow down and worship him as the sovereign king of the universe who reigns supreme over his life and his kingdom. And so this remarkable true life drama plays out here in five acts. We're going to see, first of all, the king's declaration, and then we'll see the king's vision We'll see the king's caution or the caution that Daniel gave him, the warning that he gave him. And then we'll see the king's humiliation. And then we'll finally see what I've specifically chosen to call the king's conversion. And so let's begin walking our way through this this next chapter. Daniel chapter 4, starting off here in verses 1 through 3 with the king's declaration. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. By the way, get into the habit as we're going through this um, chapter to circle or underline or bracket every time the phrase or the title, the Most High God, is used. Verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now we know that this book, the book of Daniel, was written by Daniel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what is interesting here about this chapter is that it was co-written with Nebuchadnezzar. And the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to include this autobiographical account of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in his prophetic book. What we have here in Daniel chapter 4 is is a copy of Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony that was distributed throughout his kingdom, explaining to his people how he had come to the place where he had submitted his life to God as his sovereign king. And it's truly remarkable that the king of the world's greatest empire would openly admit his pride and his temporary insanity and his beastly behavior and give glory and honor to God for his recovery. And so you read this opening declaration and you can't help but walk away from, from reading it and, and without praising God with Nebuchadnezzar for how God had so dramatically transformed his life. And again, notice this phrase for God in verse 2, the most high. I want to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. God was referred to as the most high God initially back in chapter 3, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out and you servants of the most high God and come here. And he refers to him now six times in this chapter alone, verse 2, verse 17. He's called the Most High. Uh, Verse 24, he's referred to as the Most High. Verse 25, the Most High. Verse 32, the Most High. Uh, Verse 34, the Most High God. This expression is repeated again in chapter 5. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week. Um, two times in verse 18 and verse 21. The point is this, by calling God the most high God, Nebuchadnezzar was acknowledging that he was higher than him. He was greater than any of his gods, uh, the gods of Babylon. He was greater than his kingdom, that his kingdom was greater than His kingdom, how great are the signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to explain how he learned the hard way that God was the one who was really in control, who was ultimately in control, and he was merely an instrument, a a pawn, if you will, in God's omnipotent hands to accomplish His eternal purposes and to establish His everlasting dominion. And so this preamble, if you will, uh, in verses 1 through 3, served as a summary statement of what what He was about to explain in detail. 
And, and just so you know, the timing of this event that he's about to describe seems to have occurred between 25 to 30 years after the fiery furnace incident. So again, we, we need to keep in mind as, as we try to piece together this book and these uh, events, these accounts, that there, there's, uh, again, many years that pass between the white space between chapter 3, verse 30, and chapter 4, verse 1. And so what we're about to read occurred, I believe, toward the end of his reign. Daniel would have been possibly about 50 years old by now. And if you remember, he showed up in town, uh, in Babylon, when he was about how old? Maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. And so just from a practical standpoint, I think this is a a huge encouragement for, for those of us who may have been witnessing for someone for years. Can you relate to that? There's someone in your life, maybe it's a, a parent, it's a child, it's a, it's a loved one, it's a friend, it's a co-worker, it's someone that you have been just sharing the gospel with over and over again for years. And Nebuchadnezzar's exposure to Daniel's godly life over the course of some 35 years finally resulted in his salvation. The point is we, we, we should never write someone off. I mean, listen, if there was ever a person on the planet who ever lived that you would never think would have gotten saved, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. But God brought Daniel and his three friends into into his life and began to draw him to himself through their lives, their their integrity, their their bold faith, their divine powers. And all the things that he, he saw and heard over the years gave him a clearer, deeper understanding of God. And, and this particular experience was kind of the last straw fuel. It was what God used to push him over the edge into the kingdom of God. And so if you've been witnessing to someone for a long time, don't give up hope. Keep letting your light shine before them, believing that God is at work in their lives, even though you may not be able to recognize it, even if it looks like you've made no progress whatsoever. And so we see, first of all, the king's declaration here, and then he gets into the, the meat of it. He gets, to be, gets into the details, and, and, and next we see here the king's vision the king's vision. And we see in verses 4 through 18 how Nebuchadnezzar began his testimony by explaining a second dream that he had. Let's read it together. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful, and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Sounds very similar to the vision he had of the statue and the stone in chapter 2. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. These are all the guys that uh, dodged the bullet the first time, right? Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. So the king's wise men hadn't gotten any better at their job. Uh, They were unable to interpret his dream. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, notice again, he's still calling 
Daniel by the name Belshazzar. That was the nickname that he gave him, and, and that was a, a way to exalt his own god, the, the god of Babylon. And uh, still kind of said, well, he's, kinda, he's got the spirit of the gods in him. He thought there's something unique about this guy, but he still hadn't, it still hadn't clicked yet. Verse 9, O Belshazzar, was, um, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream which I have seen along with this interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. So now he's getting to the specifics. He said, okay, Daniel, let me tell you what I saw and you tell me what it means. And again, God was once again using a dream to communicate an important message to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel was going to have the privilege of interpreting that. He says, so there I was, uh, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and the, its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. So far, so good. I was looking, though, in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven, and he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches." Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is to be is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, was having or have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, so there's still a disconnect there. He's still not getting it. But what he's getting is these nightmarish uh, images as he's sleeping, and uh, this was indeed a nightmare. It, it starts off really good. It sounds, looks like a really good dream because, hey, I was a statue once, and now I'm a big tree, and oh, but then all of a sudden, I get chopped down. What's going on here? And so again, he calls on his trusted friend, Daniel, to interpret the dream, and Daniel um, does just that. And so we see in this next section, verses 19 through 27, I've chosen to call that the king's caution, because we're going to see that, that Daniel regretted having to tell the king what the dream meant. And, and it really just shows, we're going to see here, the love and compassion that he had toward Nebuchadnezzar, that, that he was truly sad for him. Notice, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. 
In other words, I wish this wasn't true. I wish you hadn't had this dream. I wish this dream applied to somebody else. Again, this shows his, his love, that he had developed a love for this man, a compassion for this man. He was truly grieving for this man. And again, I think this is a good reminder for us that we should never talk to people about God's judgment upon them with some sense of, of, of glee. There, there should be a sense of sorrow, a sense of compassion. We, we should never share the gospel with others in a, in a mean-spirited way or a, a harsh tone of voice saying, you know what, guess what, buddy, you're going to hell if you don't repent. That's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong spirit. We need to communicate with them in a way that they sense our love, our concern, our compassion for their eternal souls. That I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but it's true. This will be your end if you choose not to listen to the gospel. And so he goes into sharing the interpretation in verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, however, a holy one descending from the heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be even grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules i love that line it's not babylon it's not nebuchadnezzar it is heaven i.e. God that reigns. And then notice how he, he ends his interpretation by boldly admonishing the king to repent. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, Daniel wasn't wishing this on him. He's like, maybe there's still hope for you. If you repent of your sinful pride and your arrogance and you bow in humble submission to the true and living God, maybe this won't happen. Now, knowing what we know about Nebuchadnezzar's angry temperament, this took a lot of guts for Daniel. To go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man alive at the time and to confront him about his arrogance and his sin and call him to repentance. But as we know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't heed Daniel's gracious warning, didn't listen to the caution that 
Daniel had given him, and a year later, the vision came to pass. And now we see the king's humiliation in verses 28 through 33. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Notice, 12 months later, a year passed. Didn't happen all at once, right? Didn't happen immediately. Took some time. 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said... Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And again, we're like, I don't want to be anywhere near this guy when he's saying stuff like that. Because the lightning bolts are going to come, right? And sure enough, notice verse 31. In the midst of his boasting... That's what he was doing there in verse 30, right? He was boasting about all that he had and all that he did and all that he accomplished. How much money he had. We've heard that recently in the news. There's a very Nebuchadnezzar-like candidate running for president. And in the midst of his boasting, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High, here it is again, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So the king's heart was so filled with pride that he he vainly took credit for all of these things that God had allowed him to achieve and to accomplish. And again, God does not share his glory with anybody. And so he interrupted Nebuchadnezzar's egotistical musings and he pronounced judgment on him because in his arrogance he had failed to acknowledge God as the one who deserved all the glory and all the honor for all that he achieved in his life. And notice verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So you get this idea of a man that just went insane. He just went off the rails, and, and he just left the palace and was out in the front yard grazing like a cow. I mean, literally on all fours, thinking that he's a cow. He's an animal of some sort, and, and, and was completely unkept. Uh, his, his hair grew out, and his nails grew out, and, 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 and sometimes we've maybe stumbled across or came across someone who's been homeless for many years, and sometimes they have that appearance of, of someone that's completely disheveled and uh, has no mind for hygiene and, 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 or no means of hygiene, and, and so here he was, uh, just an absolute maniac.
And you say, what is this? This is very strange. Well, as best we can discern, God inflicted him with, with a rare condition, we'll call it that, known today. You can look this up on the internet or you can look this up in, in medical books. Zoanthropy or therianthropy or what's called lycanthropy. That, that, that last word, ly- lycanthropy, is from Lucas, wolf, anthropos, man. Sounds like a werewolf. In the realm of psychology, what Nebuchadnezzar would have been diagnosed with, I guess, in those days was a, was a rare psychiatric disease where a person is under the delusion that they have a, they've been transformed into an animal. It would be considered a, a severe mental disorder in which a person's thoughts and emotions are, are so impaired that they lose touch with reality. I guess if we were to put a label on it today, it would be schizophrenia. Again, I think this is a great example of how every disorder that psychologists have come up with over the years um, is addressed in God's Word and, and can very well be classified as, as a sinful response to life's problems. And Nebuchadnezzar's insanity was clearly God's judgment for his prideful rebellion against him. This is what happens when you leave God out of your life. He gives you over to insanity. That's what Romans 1, 28 says. He gave them over to what? Because they failed to acknowledge God. They neither honored God or gave Him thanks. In their foolish hearts, they became, uh, you know, or in their hearts, they became foolish, exchanging the truth of, of God for a lie, and they worshiped other things, and He gave them over to immorality. He gave them over to homosexuality, and ultimately gave them over to a depraved mind. And you're crazy. You're crazy. You don't. You don't think straight. You don't act right. And the reason why I'm saying this is just to remind us all that when we call things what the Bible calls them and, and deal with them in the way that the Bible says, then there's hope. But if we choose to just slap a label on certain things and, and believe that we have a particular disease or a disorder, uh, and the only hope at that point is medication, it's okay, this is what you call it, and this is what we give you. And, 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 that's, and, and, and get used to it, because that's just the way it's going to be. That's the way you're going to live the rest of your life. And, and, and it really cuts off all hope of ever changing. You may have heard the illustration of... Uh, of, you know, giving someone morphine who's sitting on a nail. You know, the guy sitting on a nail goes, man, that something, man, really hurts. Like, well, here's some morphine. Does he feel better? Well, sure. It's going to take away the pain. It's going to remove some of the symptoms, maybe, but it doesn't get down to the real issue, the real problem. And some of you may never you know, probably most of you have never been in a situation like this, but can you imagine having to counsel Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, you're like, okay, there he is. He's out eating grass again. Crazy man, I'm going to go out there and try to talk to him. I mean, seriously, I mean, you, you think, how could I minister to this guy? How could I help him? How could I, uh, you know, rescue him and deliver him, help him get out of this, uh, this bizarre situation that he's in? And and, and so how would you do that? Well, maybe just, just I would suggest this, and hopefully none of us will be in a position to have to use this, but 
if you're dealing with someone who has displaying bizarre behavior like Nebuchadnezzar, maybe the first thing you would do is to recommend to them that they go see a doctor. Wouldn't that be a good place to start? Something is definitely wrong with you, okay? And, and so I want to encourage you to go to a medical doctor and get a thorough physical checkup to see if there's any physiological problems that might be contributing to your behavioral issues here. And it's possible there could be a, 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 some kind of physical factor that's playing a role in the way that your mind is functioning. There, there, you could have a head injury, you could have a tumor, you could have an overactive thyroid, you could have seizures, you could have a stroke, you could have diabetes, you could ha- have substance abuse, a lack of sleep, poor eating habits, a lack of exercise. You, you fill in the blank there. Any number of these physical factors can adversely affect the way you act or think. Have you ever pulled an all-nighter? How'd that next day go? I remember those in high school, and I would pull all these all-nighters, and I'd be driving. I can't believe my parents would let me drive to school because I wouldn't remember the drive from my house to the school. How did I get here? I mean, you're just you're not in your right mind when 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 you're physically uh, exhausted. And so, start with a, a medical doctor, and 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 maybe rule out some of those physical factors, if any, and then then you're left to deal with the spiritual factors that that may be causing the bizarre behavior. And again, if somebody's acting bizarre, you may say something like this, I I know you can hear me. I'm thinking about here's Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's grazing out there and I'm saying, hey, listen, buddy, I know you can hear me. I want to help you. The best help is is the Bible, and I want you to listen to the Bible, and he may just keep eating the grass, right? And so I'm just going to start reading scripture, right? And hopefully, you know, uh, the truth of God's word will penetrate their heart, and, and, and then I might say, listen, and if you become bizarre in, in the midst of this session or this time that together, that tells me that you want to be dealt with the world's way, and, and, and I'm going to have to recommend to your family to give you what you want. And listen, that's the thing. If we choose not to deal with our problems God's way, then we have no other choice than to deal with them the world's way, which is medication at best, which isn't necessarily always wrong. I'm not saying rule that out completely, but at worst, you end up in a mental institution. And again, if if you say, I'm not going to deal with my problems the way the Bible says, then, well, you have one other choice is, how does the world deal with them? Well, they lock you up, and they put coats on you, they restrain you, uh, all all those things. But Again, notice here, again, where are we going here? As soon as Nebuchadnezzar repented of his sinful pride, God delivered him from this bizarre physical and mental state that he was in and restored him to his throne in Babylon. He went from eating grass in his front yard back to the throne. You say, what what happened for those seven years? Well, it's likely that Daniel and the other Babylonian officials managed the affairs of the kingdom on on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf um, while he was under this seven-year divine discipline. Well, let's move from the bizarre to the glorious here. Verse 34, we're going to see the king's conversion here. The king's conversion, verse 34. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here it is. How how do you stop being a, a, a cow? grazing in the front yard, right? Well, here it is. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed 
the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. Notice he repented of his boastful arrogance and his reason returned to him. And my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Notice, now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Notice the I. Up to this point, he said, hey, any of you guys say anything bad about Daniel's God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, right? I'm going I'm to do something bad to you. He didn't say anything about that I'm going to worship him, right? But now he's saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just. Again, that's why many have concluded here that Nebuchadnezzar was, was truly regenerated. He became a child of God. And the verbs here in the original language indicate habitual action. This was not just a one-time thing, But this was an ongoing way of life that he went from boasting in himself to boasting in God for the rest of his life. And of course, the moral of the story, the bottom line is stated for us there in the last phrase, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And I think what happened to Nebuchadnezzar foreshadows all the Gentile nations or how all the Gentile nations will one day be humbled when God judges them through the eternal king that he has chosen to sovereignly rule the universe. And obviously that is his son, Jesus Christ, and that will happen at Christ's second coming. Well, before we talk about Christ's second coming, let's talk about Christ's first coming. When Christ came to earth the first time, he was the antithesis of Nebuchadnezzar. And really, Daniel chapter 4 is a tale of two kings, if you will. King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony demonstrated how those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. King Jesus' testimony demonstrated how those who humble themselves will be what? Exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage. But I want to leap from Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus right now and show you this beautiful uh, contrast. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we have the classic exhortation from Paul uh, to the church in Philippi, do nothing from selfishness or empty, what? Conceit or pride. Do, Do nothing from selfishness or pride, but with what? 
humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Who was the ultimate example of, 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 of not doing anything out of selfishness or pride, but with humility of mind regarded others more important than himself? He didn't just look out for his own personal interest, but he looked, looked out to the interest of others. Who was that? Jesus. Who, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is the classic kenosis passage, right, where uh, we see that the, the God of, of the universe uh, in the form of Christ, the second member of the Trinity, took on human limitations. This is the incarnation, the crucifixion here. Or I should say maybe the condescension would be the first thing. The condescension uh, coming from heaven to earth and then the incarnation taking on the form of man and then the crucifixion of all the ways you could possibly die. Even death on a cross? The most humiliating, shameful way to die in that time? Verse 9, for this reason also, God highly, what? Exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, Jesus hadn't just created one of, one of the seven wonders of the earth, like Nebuchadnezzar had. He created the entire earth. And yet, instead of exalting himself, like Nebuchadnezzar did, check out all this stuff I've done and I've achieved, and Jesus could have done that. Hey, I'm the creator. I I did all this stuff. But instead of exalting himself, he what? Humbled himself. And even though Jesus was God and deserved to be worshipped by mankind, he willingly left the glories of heaven and humbled himself by becoming a man and allowing the men that he created to kill him on a cross. And so Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the greatest example of humble, selfless, sacrificial service of others. And because Christ humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place. And one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Listen, God is going to humble every one of us someday. So it's best to humble yourself now. Rather than have to be forced to bow later, willingly, gladly bow now to the Lordship of Christ. Don't wait for God to have to cut you down to size like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, pride results in destruction. Humility results in exaltation. You know, it dawned on me as I was studying through this passage 
that if you think about it, the story, the whole story of the Bible is basically all about pride and humility. I mean, you could summarize the whole story of the Bible. It's the, it's the contrast or the conflict, if you will, between pride and humility. And Satan is the personification of pride, and Jesus is the personification of humility. And Satan led mankind into sin by exalting himself and attempting to be like God, and God came to lead mankind out of sin by humbling himself and becoming like man and dying in our place and paying the penalty for our prideful rebellion against him. That, by the way, we learn from Satan. And so Satan's initial act of pride was offset by Jesus' final act of humility. Jesus had to die on the cross to undo Satan's, what, what's all that Satan's pride had done. And so it stands to reason that the key to humility is living in the shadow of the cross. Wouldn't you agree? And if, that's the, if that is the ultimate picture of humility. In fact, that act of humility on the cross was, was necessary to undo and overcome all of what Satan's pride has done. In other words, humility conquered pride. Then how can we conquer pride in our lives? It's staying focused on the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. I mean, when you truly contemplate the cross and all that was involved there, I mean, it just crushes your pride. My favorite hymn that I would sing to our kids when they were little, when they were going to bed, was when I surveyed the wondrous cross. And... That first verse says it perfectly. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my what? On all my pride. It just, it just pours contempt on all my pride. Another British preacher, John Stott, said this, every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. And this is how he ends. He says, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. I mean, how can you possibly be arrogant when you're standing next to the cross? Here's the cross and Jesus dying and, and you're like, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. I've accomplished a lot of neat things. I've done a lot of good things in life. And yeah, you know, seriously? See, when we get an accurate glimpse of the cross, all we can do is stand there with a bowed head and a, and a broken heart. And whenever pride rears its ugly head in our lives, it's evidence that we have lost sight of the cross. One of the most helpful commentators to me with um, the study through Daniel is a guy named Ian DeGood. And this is what he said. This vision of the crucified 
and exalted Jesus is itself the cure for our overweening pride. How can we exalt ourselves and continue to sing our own praises when our eyes are fixed on Jesus? What have we accomplished compared to him? What is more, the scars that remain visible even now in his hands and feet as the lamb that was slain remind us constantly of their cause, our own depravity. In view of the incredible mercy we have received, how can we ever boast in anything except the cross of Christ? And so may we, like the Apostle Paul, say, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this fascinating story, this amazing testimony of your regenerating work, at least what appears to us to be your regenerating work in the, the heart of a very prideful, very boastful, very egotistical man. And Lord, there may be a Nebuchadnezzar here this morning who has just been all about themselves and their whole life has revolved around themselves and they're constantly thinking of themselves and talking about themselves and uh, singing their own praises and have really no regard for you or for anyone else. And I pray that you would convict them this morning and help them to understand that, that you're opposed to them. That, that they've made themselves your enemy by being so prideful and arrogant. But Lord, you'd also give them hope that while you're opposed to the proud, you give grace to the humble. And if they're willing to humble themselves this morning, Lord, and, and bow the knee to Christ as their Lord, as their Master, their Savior, that you will exalt them and, and, and bring them out of the depths of their sin and one day bring them to heaven where they can worship Christ for all eternity. Lord, for those of us who know you, Lord, I, we confess that oftentimes we struggle with pride. Uh, just when we think we're, we've overcome it, it, it rears its ugly head again, and there's never, never will be a time until we get to heaven, when we can say that we've conquered pride in our lives, it's always going to be lurking there. And so I pray that we would just stay looking at the cross, lingering at the cross, to keep pride at bay as we continue just to look at Jesus and his humble act coming and condescending and incarnating and being crucified, Lord, sacrificing himself for our salvation. Lord, that that would just keep us in a humble frame of mind that we would be always surveying, always contemplating, always meditating on the cross and on the gospel, and it would just uh, help us to keep a low profile before you and before men, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.